Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Facebook and data privacy. One of the things the company has most recently done is to issue its 27-page document that governs the behavior of its more than 2 billion users. Uh, this offers uh, Facebook's definitions for hate speech, violent threats, sexual exploitation, and more. Here to tell us about the efforts of the company and the issues that it faces is Monica Bickert, Vice President of Product Policy and Counterterrorism for Facebook, uh, joining us from Menlo Park, California. California. Monica Pickard, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us about this uh, uh, this 27-page document and what you would like people that may not read all 27 pages, but what would you like them to take away from it and know that you're trying to convey and communicate? Well, the, the top line here is that we really want to have a safe community, and that means having rules in place that say we don't allow hate speech, we don't allow harassment, if you come across something like that on Facebook, please tell us about it so we can remove it quickly. I imagine when I was reading over some of these sort of guidelines, they're subjective. And, you know, how are you going to deal with the sort of subjective nature of this? Will it be from hiring more people uh, to actually oversee these and make uh, judgment calls on the complaints? We have hired more reviewers in the past year. We now have more than 7,500 people who are reviewing content that possibly violates our standards. This would be content that people have reported to us through the site or content that our technical tools have flagged as possibly violating our standards. When that content comes into our reviewers, they apply our policies. If the content violates our standards, they'll remove it. And in most cases, we're able to make these decisions within 24 hours of getting the report. Now, you have background as a former federal uh, prosecutor, and, and I'm wondering, based on, on that experience, whether doing this for a private organization uh, like Facebook that has such a public, uh, a, a, a public face and has, in a sense, the public has almost as much control over what goes on on Facebook than fa as Facebook itself. Does that sort of offer a particular challenge and one that you've never seen before? Well, one challenge is that this community is not only large, it's more than 2 billion people, but it's also very global. More than 85% of people who are on Facebook are outside the United States. So when we think about where to draw the line on speech, it can't just be based on how one group of people feels. We really have to think about everybody. And that's why we constantly talk to safety organizations and experts around the world so that we can make sure we're learning about new trends, uh, new safety topics, and making sure that we're keeping our standards current. Uh, one thing I was looking at in one of the sections uh, at Facebook outlines how they're attempting to fight fake news among uh, the ways includes disrupting economic incentives for people, That's pages right. and domains that propagate misinformation. What are the economic incentives currently in place uh, for some of these uh, venues that do propagate fake fake news, quote unquote? Well, most, co most commonly when people try to share fake news, they're doing it for financial reasons. 
In other words, they're sharing something that looks like a news story. You click on that, and it actually takes you to some ad farm or some spammy page that's off of Facebook. That is, has gotten easier for us to detect, and we remove that wherever we find it. We also remove any fake accounts, and we find that they are uh, often the source of fake news. So overall, we're hoping that uh, the situation is getting better and that people will also have more context when they're deciding the news that they're seeing, when they're deciding whether or not that news is something they should rely upon. We're helping with that by providing information to people. Whenever they see a story on Facebook that might be fake, we are trying to share related articles from around the Internet and also information about who exactly has published this story and what does the Internet say about that publisher. Uh, uh, Monica Bickard, as the Vice President of Product Policy and, and Counterterrorism, uh, do you see a, a time when you will have more concerted effort on the part of other technology companies in the same context? And is there any reason why they wouldn't sign up for the same 27-page document? Well, all of these social media companies, they work a little bit differently. Uh, most of them have policies, and most of the policies cover the same topics. And we do work together closely on things like child safety or combating terrorism propaganda. Uh, those relationships are very strong. But I think you can expect in the years ahead to see those relationships get even stronger. You know, one thing that I'm struck by, uh, Monica, is an apparent attempt by the company to put all of the users of Facebook under its uh, U.S.-based uh, rules and policies. And I'm wondering, you know, was that a deliberate decision based on some of the European privacy laws? I know that our legal team is making decisions based on the new regulations in Europe that, that are in place, as well as regulations that we have in the United States. But I want to be clear that the standards that we have released are something different. These are not based on laws. These are based on what we think it takes to keep this community safe. Is there something that you wish that the community would do to get out ahead of this conversation rather than having to face questions from either uh, the U.S. Congress or indeed react to situations that become uh, public, such as the Cambridge Analytica case? Is there something that you can do to be in front of all this rather than, in a sense, being reactive? As a company, we try to stay ahead of issues by talking to safety experts and organizations worldwide who have the latest information on potential threats. As a community, and thinking about all the people who are using Facebook, we think the best thing is to share exactly what the rules are and make it easy for people to tell us if there's something on the site that really doesn't belong there. Is it tough, Monica, to preserve humor while trying to crack down on some of the issues that people have had with the uh, platform? Yes, it is. There's a real challenge, for instance, when you think about something like hate speech or threats. Obviously, we don't want either of those on the site. But you also can envision saying to a friend, if you come late to my party tomorrow night, I'm going to kill you. I really want you there at the beginning. Um, and that's the sort of content that people share without meaning any harm at all. So our reviewers have to try to make those decisions every day, and they don't always have all the context. Well, but one question that I have is, if there is a human being making these decisions, does that put the liability, the legal liability, on you, say, if, uh, if there is a threat like that, uh, I'm going to kill you, and you know the reviewers decided it's in jest, but it turns out to be real? 
What's important to us is making sure that if we become aware of an actual credible threat of imminent violence, that we do send that to law enforcement. Our terms make clear that we will do that, and that's also uh, consistent with the law. Just quickly, uh, based on your uh, experience with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, has this incident, has this issue changed him over the last couple of months? Well, look, the company and our senior leadership, including Mark, has also has always cared about making sure that our community is safe. People aren't going to come to Facebook if it's not a safe place. And, and that's really what we want to do is give people a place to come and share and connect. So that's really priority number one for us. All right, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you very much. Uh, Monica Bickert is the Vice President, Product Policy and Counterterrorism uh, for Facebook, uh, speaking to us from Menlo Park, California. Uh, this on the occasion of the release of a 27-page document that governs the behavior of uh, users of uh, Facebook, more than 2 billion users uh, on Facebook. So excited. I want to get to our next guest all about ETFs and exp exponential ETFs. Phil Bach, chief executive of Exponential ETFs. They're based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. And uh, Phil, great to have you with us. We talk about the topic of, you know, the overexposure that many investors may have, even though they do not know it to certain types of stocks, for example, Facebook, uh, Alphabet, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Google, and so on. Uh, uh, what exactly do you believe that people really think they own versus what they really do own? Well, thank you for having me on. And, you know, when you take a look at the S&P 500 or, or really any market cap weighted index fund, a lot of people assume that, well, you know what, I bought the S&P 500 fund. Now I'm in a broadly diversified representation of the U.S. economy. In reality, because of the nature of market cap weighting, where you keep putting more and more money into the highest capitalization stocks, you get a very high concentration. And right now, if you look at the FANG trade, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, we'll throw Microsoft into it. They've Those five stocks have contributed 30% of the market return since the beginning of 2017. Uh, um, the weighting of those companies within um, within the S&P 500 is now higher than the bottom 260 stocks combined. So there's a tremendous concentration risk within those market cap weighted indexes. And each of those names has a lot of risk that I think a lot of people are, are first now starting to talk about, starting to think about. But we're talking about stocks that have run up to an unprecedented level, have extremely high valuations, yet they have major, major antitrust and regulatory risks that could very quickly reverse their fortunes. Well, Phil, just to push back a little bit, they also are cash printing machines. And you're seeing you know, incredible balance sheets at the likes of Alphabet, Google's parent company, uh, or Amazon. Well, Amazon.com is sort of a separate story, uh, but certainly uh, Google and certainly uh, even Facebook. So what do you say to that? Well, Facebook is right now earning 98% of their revenue from marketing and selling targeted advertisements uh, to a user base you know, can be extremely profitable. They've, they've turned that into an efficient machine and they do it better than anybody. But in order to keep their advertisers coming back and paying, the ads have to work. And for the ads to work, the users have to be engaged. And we're seeing more and more that users are becoming disengaged from Facebook. They're becoming unhappy with the overall experience that they're getting on Facebook. Um, and you know, it, it's a very tricky thing. I mean, the, 
the, the value that Facebook has is being able to target advertising specifically to specific users based on all the data that they generate on those users. But the users don't want that data being used. And, and somewhere in there is a fine line that Facebook has to walk. The valuation right now for Facebook assumes that the growth is going to continue indefinitely, exponentially for their revenue line. We think that that uh, a peak is, is, you know, very closely around the corner. You know, Phil, just to sort of uh, push that forward, Facebook is set to uh, report their earnings after the bell today. I'm just wondering, are you seeing investors start to realize their perhaps overexposure to the FANG names, including Facebook, and start to demonstrate some concern, pull back, anything uh, of the like? Slowly, slowly, we're starting to see it. Um, Jeff Gundock was talking about it yesterday at the Sone conference. Um, you know, we we are uh, ETF issuers and we deal, all of our products are systematic process-based funds. And I think there's an assumption in the ETF world and in the index investing world that the products that market cap weighted you know, broad index products are broadly diversified. And it's really the concentration within those indexes that we think is a huge risk to investors. And that's really uh, where we are focused on, on you know, trying to uh, bring some light into it. Has the creation of ETFs gotten away from the creators of ETFs? Very possibly, very possibly. I mean, there's really two different things. There's ETFs and there's index investing. And without the invention of the ETF, we think index investing would still be growing tremendously through, you know, futures and options and just index mutual funds. Well, and you can buy a share of every one of the S&P 500 stocks if you want. I That's mean, that right. becomes the index. And, and, and trading has become more and more efficient and cheap now. So institutions can do that. And we're starting to see that happen. The ETF is simply a vehicle. It's a wrapper. And it, it's, you know, for a bunch of geeky reasons that would take a while to get into, it's just a little bit more efficient, especially from a tax perspective, than mutual funds, certainly than hedge funds. So, you know, there's kind of two different things with the vehicle and the in index investing, but there is no doubt that the proliferation of index investing and ETF simultaneously have contributed to the run-up in these, you know, it's it, market cap weighting is really a momentum strategy. You're at every rebalance, you're taking money, you're putting it into the biggest names. We've launched a, uh, we have a strategy that reverse cap weights. And what we're trying to do is take money out of the winners and put it into the losers. And at the same time, we're getting a, uh, a little bit of a, uh, what we call the size premium or the small minus big factor in the strategy. So, um, you know, we've seen over time based on, you know, S&P backed the data to so take it with a grain of salt but you know over a 20-year period it has consistently provided alpha over both equal weighting and market cap weighting but really what we're seeing now that's different that's unprecedented is the run-up in these top tier names by market cap in the yeah. S&P 500 we've never seen anything like it before where such a small group of stocks have such a large weighting and we think it's a very big risk right now for investors Phil uh, what kind of fees do you charge on these funds uh, so we have an ETF that charges 29 basis points. The ticker is RVRS. It's a reverse cap weighted ETF. And we have a 65 basis point ETF that is uh, the ACSI. And I would just ask everyone to speak to a financial professional to see if the investment yeah. is appropriate. Well, the reason why I ask, I know that you uh, have a long history in ETFs, working with the New York Stock Exchange, uh, as well as Guggenheim Investments, where you developed alternative mutual funds. What type of tolerance do investors have to fees, given the fact that we've seen the rush of, uh, of money into ETFs disproportionately go to the lowest fee uh, funds? 
when you look at a new strategy or you look at any investment, the return is very uncertain. And even if you're in a, uh, you know, the safest investment, you don't know what your return is going to be. The only certainty is the fees. So investors have been focusing more and more on fees, and I think they should. Um, you know, we're unable to compete with the likes of Vanguard and Schwab and have absolutely dirt, you know, dirt cheap ETFs, you know, a, a, as a startup company. But we are trying to offer everything as as cheaply as we possibly can because it's tremendously important to the after-tax returns, to the, you know, to the net that investors receive, um, I think it's a very healthy thing for investors to focus on fees. And, you know, quite frankly, even though it talks against our book, we hope that that continues. One of the things I just want to note is that while you talk about the uh, dominance of these uh, few stocks, uh, Facebook, uh, Amazon, and Netflix, and so on, there's a huge divergence in their performance this year. So you might own them in a concentrated way, but then when you combine their performance it may not actually give you the results that you thought you were going to receive. I'll give you an example. Microsoft is up 7% so far this year. Netflix is up 54%, but then if you look at companies like Apple, down 3%. Facebook, down 10%. Alphabet, Google, down 2%. Amazon, though, up 21%. So you have a huge divergence of performance, and so you're not really even selecting for performance. You're just selecting based on inclusion in an index that you have no idea the relative weightings of these stocks because they're cap weighted is that right is that an accurate description that's correct yep yep I mean, I mean, ultimately, when you look at index investing, I think, you know, we're reaching a point where index investing is is really becoming process-driven investing or rules-based investing. So market cap weighting, you know, what was really, it, it came to prominence back when there was a, a very high cost to execute trades. And what market cap weighting does more than anything is it manages the liquidity of the holdings. The most liquid names get the biggest allocations. And it, it was a way for, uh, for you know, fund companies or, or, you know, Vanguard in particular to manage the expenses of the trading in the fund, but it was never optimized for returns. And we think there are more optimal ways. And that's where we get to the reverse cap weighting. We think it's exactly that. It's the it's the other side of the trade. And that is where we think we can really optimize, you know, performance returns. Phil Bach, thank you so much for being with us. Phil Bach is Chief Executive Officer of Exponential ETFs, uh, which is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Well, we talk a lot about tariffs and the uh, increasing trade tensions between the U.S., China, and Europe. Here to talk about uh, this all from a firsthand perspective from the CEO seat is Eric Fierwald. He is chief executive officer of Syngenta, based in Basel, Switzerland, uh, but uh, is a broad company that was acquired by Kema China. The acquisition was completed last year and uh, does business across the world. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for being being here. So let's start there. How have you already seen some of these trade tensions trickle into your everyday? Well, so, so far, there has not been significant impact. Um, there obviously is a lot of concern about tariffs being, being levied by China for soybean imports from the U.S. Uh, at 25 percent, which would be a significant impact because then, then likely China would end up buying more soybeans from other markets. Uh, the U.S. farmer is the most productive in the world. It's our most important market. We bring out new technology in the United States first. We do most of our research here. Our global seed business is located here, headquartered here. So that's a really important market for us. 
So we would hate to see that happen. On the flip side, Lisa, we see this as a huge opportunity for U.S. agriculture to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. There's a great opportunity for U.S. agriculture to export more grain, more soybeans and other grains, as well as ethanol, because China is going to an E10 policy, 10% ethanol, to, to help their environment, as well as more meat exports. There's today significant amount of poultry. There could be more meat exports. So we could be a big part of the solution instead of the part of the problem. Speak, if you can, a little bit about the context in which you operate, because I know that you've done some recent acquisitions. One yeah. is, uh, what is it, Abbott and Cobb. Costell, uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, um, right, Abbott and Costell, <laughs> Abbott and Cobb. Uh, and I'm, I'm, tell us about the acquisitions, then I'll get to the China question. Yeah, so we were we were acquired June of last year by ChemChina. So $44 billion? Yeah, $44 okay. billion, the, by far the biggest deal that China's ever done overseas. And since then, they've been very supportive of, of more investment in the base business. We've invested in more commercial people, more research, um, more breeding for our seed business around the world. And we've done a number of acquisitions. Four announced so far, but I can tell you there's a number of others in the pipeline. And of those four that we've done so far, two are in seeds, one large corn and soybean business seed company in South America, Brazil and Argentina called Nidera Seeds. And then one vegetable seed company, Abbott and Cobb, here in the U.S. that it's a leader in sweet corn for for food consumption, and we're going to globalize that. Two of them are in the digital space, which is a hot area in agriculture. One's a farm management system, digital system for for farmers in Brazil, which has had a lot of progress in Brazil, and another is called Farm Shots, which is which is a digital imaging company a satellite digital imaging company that has applicability all over the world. So very exciting support that we've been getting from ChemChina already. And we see more both in, in, in strengthening our base business and the biggest opportunity for that in China because the China market is, is ripe for it. There's no company with significant market share in either seeds or crop protection. We see that as an opportunity, but also in, in, in further acquisitions. All right. Then to follow up on the China context, and uh, can you describe, if someone were to say to you, what's the economic health of the U.S. farmer right now? It's it, The U.S. farmer is really challenged by the, the global commodity low prices in, in agriculture, um, and the U.S. farmer gets the lowest subsidy of any farmer in the world except for Australia. Every other farmer gets more subsidy as a percentage of, of, of their, their price, selling price. But the good news is the U.S. farmer is by far the most productive. And for those concerned about climate change, has the least impact on the climate because of the pr productivity. There's less greenhouse gas emissions. There's less water consumption. Uh, an environmentally sustainable way, the U.S. farmer is, it has the highest yields, the lowest cost, and, and the most environmentally sustainable. So I think the, 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 the farmer in the U.S. that owns their farm, owns their land, is still very healthy. Those that rent are, are challenged, but I think the future is still bright because the, the, the demand for agriculture products continues to grow with population right. and poor people getting wealthier and starting to eat meat. So, so there's still great opportunity for the American farmer. So I, I want to ask, I want to shift our focus to Europe from the U.S. The European Union is expected to vote this week on whether to ban a certain pesticide that is associated with bee deaths. Uh, this could potentially harm your business, no? 
Well, Europe Europe has had now a history of a number of years of of, of going away from agriculture technology, and the European farmer productivity declines while the rest of the world gets better as 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 the rest of the world uses modern agriculture technology tools. So to us, the U.S. farmer just gets more productive relative to Europe, the Brazilian farmer, the Argentina. The, the demand will be met by someplace in the world, and we supply everywhere in the world. So for us, it's neutral, but unfortunately for the European farmer, it's, it's, it's a big negative. I want to thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Uh, Eric uh, Fierwald is the chief executive of Syngenta. They are a global uh, seed and agriculture company. They are based in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, and once again, uh, the completed deal, the takeover by uh, ChemChina in June of last year for uh, $44 billion. One holy grail in the pharmaceutical industry is a cure for cancer. Pair that with an answer to the opioid epidemic, and you have uh, something quite interesting. Joining us now uh, to talk about some new cancer treatments is Dr. Silvio Itescu. He is chief executive officer of Mesoblast, which is based in Melbourne, Australia, but he joins us here in our 1130 studio. So, uh, Dr. Itescu, can you just start with what is Mesoblast, and can you talk a little bit about the uh, stem cell drug treatments that are all in late stage? phase three clinical trials. Sure. Thanks Thanks for having me. Mesoblast is a um, publicly listed company both here on NASDAQ uh, as well as on the Australian Stock Exchange. We're developing uh, late phase uh, therapies based on a common platform technology called mesenchymal lineage cells. Uh, these cells are able to respond to inflammation by releasing factors that switch off damaging inflammation and at the same time help rebuild damaged tissues. Um, the cells themselves are, are highly scalable. We industrially manufacture them. We understand the mechanisms of action. And we are able to generate off-the-shelf therapeutics uh, that target some very large unmet diseases and unmet needs. Uh, in terms of cancer, you're, you're, uh, you're talking about our recently completed phase three program in children with graft-versus-host disease, which is a devastating complication of a bone marrow transplant for children who otherwise um, have been cleared of their underlying cancer. 50% of children who and, and adults who undergo bone marrow transplants from an unrelated donor develop graft-versus-host disease, which uh, in severe stages, particularly in children, has as high as 70% mortality rate. In a, in a 55 patient phase three trial, we demonstrated that uh, um, over 70% of children treated with our cells responded uh, um, and, and uh, had, had clear improvement in outcomes and we met the pre-specified primary endpoint that the FDA put in place for us to move forward with, with a new treatment paradigm to treat this devastating condition. Um, we expect to be reporting in the next, over the next uh, couple of months this quarter really on, on the overall survival of these children at 100 days um, and then subsequently at day 180. And uh, on the basis of, of those results, we expect to, be, to get in front of the FDA towards the end of this year and talk about what, what filing for approval looks like. As a cellular medicine company, where did the cells originally come from? We have a very, very well-established program to obtain the cells from healthy donors. We have a donor program that's here in the United States. Um, we obtain the cells from healthy uh, young 
donors of the ages of 18 to 24, roughly. Uh, and and the, th these unique cells are then extracted uh, and they're able to be expanded in very large numbers so they can be ultimately put, put into vials and shipped and uh, uh, they generate really an off-the-shelf product for various indications. Our whole manufacturing process is industrial and we're able to delineate each product based on our manufacturing capabilities. So our product for graphers host disease is distinct from our product that's currently in phase three for chronic heart failure, from our product that's currently in phase three for chronic low back pain from uh, severe degeneration of the discs. What's common to these various disparate conditions is that they're all, they're all derived from severe inflammation. And our cells are very, very potent immunomodulatory agents that can switch off damaging inflammation in a way that you just cannot get with either small molecules or monoclonal antibodies. So this is a whole new way of treating the most severe forms of inflammatory conditions. Dr. Itescu, I'm just curious. Uh, what you're talking about sounds incredibly promising, especially the idea of it being, uh, you know, marketable and, and a quick sort of trial-to-shelf type of uh, transition. Why are the shares down seven percent in the U.S. Well, so I far this year. Yeah. yeah. I, I, look, I, th I think there's there's a general perception that that um, uh, we we need to uh, have sufficient capital to bring these products to market. Uh, and I think what we're able to demonstrate, and we have recently through a through a um, uh, a, a partnership with, um, with with Hercules, with a uh, up to a seventy-five million dollar drawdown facility, is that we're able to to uh, raise substantial amounts of capital when we need it, in order to support the the launch capabilities and and plans that we have in place. What about the uh, public debt markets or other types of ways to get financing, given how low interest rates are at this point? Oh, that's exactly what we're addressing, and the, the Hercules uh, uh, program is, in fact, is a, is a debt-structured outcome, which I think speaks strongly to the, the, the um, uh, opportunities in front of us, the fact that we're able to back ourselves and that, that folks like Hercules have backed us um, through, through debt repayable on uh, future sales. I think it, it speaks to how mature the pipeline is. Can you give us an update on the treatment for chronic low back pain uh, because of disc degeneration? Because that's about pain management, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the number one cause of opioid prescriptions today is in chronic low back pain. 50%, in fact, of opioid prescriptions are, are written for patients with chronic uh, unremitting back pain, predominantly from degeneration of the intervertebral discs. Uh, most of these people are relatively young uh, and, and, and have, have robust working careers that are being you know, significantly impacted by the chronic pain. And central to that is the inflammation that goes on in disc degeneration. So we've completed initially a, a 100-patient phase 2 trial, which demonstrated that a single injection of our specially manufactured cells into the disc alleviated pain in over 50% of patients for at least two years. Quite a dramatic pain reduction uh, associated with also improvement in function. We've then gone on to phase three and have just completed enrollment of a 400 patient randomized placebo controlled phase three trial that's literally uh, completed enrollment over the last month or so. And uh, we hope that, that uh, over, the, over the next period, the release of data from that trial will, will confirm the initial observations that we saw in phase two. 
I think given the, the current crisis in the, in the opioid uh, abuse area, I think we, we potentially have, have a treatment that could, in the, in, the, in the treatment of patients with severe disease, be an alternative and be used well in advance of anybody considering opioids. So we're pretty excited about it. Just real quick, has the government expressed interest in this at all? So we're certainly talking to the FDA uh, around how best to progress this product. Under, under the new guidelines of the FDA, there's an accelerated pathway called regenerative medicine advanced therapies for uh, diseases that have high unmet needs. And in fact, we've already obtained one of these AMET designations for chronic heart failure in patients with end-stage heart failure who are so sick that they require a left ventricular device implant. Those patients have, have a mortality that is as high as most cancers. Thank you very much for being with us and sharing this information and uh, giving us an update on the company. Uh, Dr. Silvio Itescu is the chief executive of Mesoblast. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.